Thank you for listening to Together for Peace with Reem Gunaim. Thank you, everyone, for joining. And what a pleasure to have Tija Roth here with us uh, on Together for Peace as we continue to grow our amazing global community of peace builders. Thank you all for being part of this journey to shed light on the sustainable solutions for peace. We live in a world where the most peaceful nations on earth continue to become more peaceful, while the least peaceful places continue to deteriorate. At a time where the peace inequality gap continues to grow, we have a responsibility to take action and reverse this trend. We reverse this trend by protecting human rights for all people, and we must start by engaging in positive conversations to build mutual understanding and embrace the discomfort of learning and evolving. Each time we collaborate and grow together, we actively promote peace equality. Together for Peace is a global platform for agents of change from all walks of life. We generate conversations that motivate, educate, and activate our online community to cultivate peace solutions that care. Together, we will globally fill the gap to solve peace inequality. Now, let me introduce you to, today, to today's Together for Peace guest, Teja Roth. The first thing you may notice about Teja is her contagious smile, a smile that shines even more brightly when she's in her element of urban design, development, and peace. Teja is the CEO of City Says, a Slovenian organization that creates sustainable approaches to architecture and design, focusing on the revitalization of abandoned and neglected public spaces in the city. Teja is an urban innovator. Her adventurous and curious spirit leads her to design original, revolutionary urban spaces. Just like Teja, her designs are one of a kind, works of art that combine aesthetics, function, and fun to create unique public spaces of communities to thrive, for communities to thrive. Her mission is to elevate a community's potential by rethinking the spaces in which they interact live and work. Her creativity was further developed at Stanford University while studying advanced entrepreneurship as well as at Chula Longhorn University as a Rotary Peace Fellow. Her work has been presented all over the world including Slovenia, Scotland, Berlin, Vienna, Portugal, Chicago, Athens, Liverpool, and France just to name a few. Through her work she not only demonstrates professional expertise on urban settings but she weaves a deeper understanding of the human condition into her designs. Tija has won many battles facing one of the most difficult hardships of life, loss. Through overcoming these hardships, Tija has developed a spirit of resilience, strength, and generosity. She applies her life lessons into her designs to inspire communities to thrive despite their own hardships. Her designs are not only spaces, but thoughtful experiences that build a community's foundation to building inner peace and peace at large. I am so blessed to have Teja as a colleague, but most importantly, as my Slovenian sister. I am so proud of her because she is a superstar. I love watching her light brighten the world, one space, one community, and one city at a time. I can't wait for you all to experience Teja's brilliant sparkle during today's living room conversation. I'm so excited to uh, to meet such a wonderful, sweet, and brilliant friend of mine. Um, well, Tasia, thank you so much for this wonderful like introduction. You actually, I I almost started crying. <laughs> <laughs> Tasia, I mean, I wish I could. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I, I wish I could honor you like with even more words, but sometimes the time and the limitation of words um, betray like. Um, is under um, what we can offer. So to get started, I really want to ask you um, about, you are such a strong, phenomenal woman and you were raised by um, strong, creative, independent women, uh, such as your grandmother, Maria. Uh, so can you tell us why she's strong and um, why did she uh, need to leave her town and husband? Yeah, my, my grandmother, um, she passed away like 10 years ago or so, um, but she helped to raise me. 
um, after uh, my mother died, but she was really strong woman in all respects. And I don't mean only in her actions. Um, she was, um, she went through a lot of hardship in her life. And uh, when he, when, when there was a war ongoing here, um, they, they had to move overnight to another city in the eastern part of Slovenia because otherwise they would be moved to, to Germany and they would take their kids. Um, so she was uh, like, she moved and she, she was a merchant back then. So she had a, a general store she, she was running and um, yeah. And, uh, and she quit overnight and she went to another place with her family. She was the, uh, the woman of true spirit, like uh, everybody now even says that they, um, that they live up to her, like they want to live up to her standards still now. And um, yeah, and uh, during the time uh, when, when she was in, in another city, um, living in another city, they started again the store and her husband was also a tradesman, uh, but he had a drinking problem. So we have a lot of this domestic violence here in Slovenia as well. Um, and uh, he got some meningitis. I really want to point this out because it's never um, to, to, uh, talked about. Um, and he had a meningitis and the doctor said that he will uh, he will go mad if he starts drinking again, but he didn't listen, so he started. And that's why my grandmother had to move to another town. And uh, actually, it was the first time that she <laughs> she sent him to move. <laughs> and then she came after him when things got a little bit more stable. Because at, back in the days, um, at least in my family, it was not so common to divorce. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he came here and uh, she came after him when, when things got a little bit more stable. He stopped drinking, but then he got sick again and he died. But uh, she was a woman of, you know, she was a very good communicator and uh, she loved people and every, like all the customers. She always said that the customer has always right. Um, so, um, yeah, she was an amazing woman. Yeah. Um, I, her. I love how she wanted to protect her family and she made the difficult decision mm. to leave. And, and if she didn't do that, you know, your mom would mm. have probably had a different life. But she yeah. chose to, to take care of, of your mom and, and later you. So tell me about your mom who you lost, like you mentioned, Teja. Um, um, and her name was Maja. Maja? Maya. Maya, Maya. Yeah, Maya, okay. I, I'm just trying to understand yeah. that. Yeah, Maya. She had a long, long name, Maximiliana Maria Roth. Uh, yes. And That's beautiful. Can you repeat that one more time? Because it's... A, Maximiliana Maria um, Resnik. Um, you know, my, my grandmother was Maximilian, and my uncle is also Maximilian. They call him Max. And Maria was taken after my, my grandmother, so then shortly Maya. <laughs> <laughs> Maya is just the, the thing that everyone can share. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, so you lost your mom to liver, a liver disease when you were 17 years old. Um, mm. And she had a huge impact on you. She was also a beautiful, strong woman. Um, and so what is that, that your mom, the biggest impact that she had on you? I think the biggest impact had um, that she still has on me was her optimism and her drive for and her passion for life. Because she always used to say, the other day I, I, I said this in, English, in Slovenian and I could not translate, but now I found uh, some sort of translation. Nothing is ever as bad as, bad as it seems. Yeah. And there's always a sil silver lining to anything. So I am so now pulling her wisdom in, into this day today, because um, yeah, uh, this optimism and, and every year she was sending me all these notes and postcards and everything from everywhere she went. She, she was also a globe trotter. She traveled a lot. 
And I am very grateful that I had the opportunity to meet her and be with her for such a long time, you know, yeah. Yeah, and and your mom, she um, was trying hard to fight death to be with you as long I, as she could. Yeah, yeah, she was prolonging her life for like about eight years with all these alternative medical practices and energy medicine and stuff. So I was uh, very young, at a very young age, I was a transcendental meditator and so on. And she was microbiotic uh, freak <laughs> and so on. <laughs> and we, we spent a lot of time in the retreats and, and in all these, um, you know, um, spa and everything because it, it helped her in so many ways. And also she wanted to, to give me as much as she could. And I love this dynamic that you mentioned earlier about how your grandmother is so strong and your mom is so loving. So I think when uh, when your mom passed, you know, she used to be doing, you know, a lot for you. And then how did your grandmother kind of change you a little bit? Do you know, um, the first thing my grandmother said when we uh, exited, the, I was the only one, the first one who got to know that she's dead. Uh, she passed away and the first thing that my grandmother said on on the stairs uh, in front of the hospital was oh my god how are we going to survive how are we going to make it and she was like completely shocked and i said what do you mean i was uh, not uh, registering the entire thing um, completely but uh, yeah it was the first thing that came to mind to, to my grandmother and it also um for a couple of years was also my biggest uh, disappointment. I, sh I could say disappointment because I was so angry that she left me. She always promised that she will always be there for me and then she disappeared. But in fact, over the years, I realized that it's not like that, that she never disappeared. And that uh, in everything that I'm doing, she's there. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so then, Tasia, like your mom is even more amazing and, you know, and it all like trickles down in you. Like, so all these amazing people in your life are shining through you, obviously. Yeah. Um, so she um, had to kind of survive the loss of her husband and uh, your father uh, when uh, you also... Um, um, he, um, he, he passed away when you were um, a child. And so um, he was also an architect, correct? And then um, I believe his name was Stein, from what I recall. Yeah. Stein, yes. Stein. Also a name, a long name, but I won't be bothering you. Let's, let's keep after this. After him, you know, I have this name after him as well. Okay. So. <laughs> um, and Stein, so it's not Stein, it's Stein. Stane, Stane. Stane, okay, Stane, okay, um, and um, he was very talented architect and artist and creative person, like he, he still has like his footprint of creativity even in your local cinema somewhere, like you mentioned that to me. Yeah. Yeah, right? He so was tell us. Scenes uh -huh. for the movies, scenography for the movies. Yeah. Also. Amazing. Uh, so tell us about the story of the camera, uh, you know, oh. that you yeah, and your first introduction to space, meaning, and art. So he had a very good eye for details, right? And he was a good photographer. Um, I don't remember, I don't recall, because I was six when he died. I don't recall many of these moments, but I was told that he was a brilliant like, observer. And on one of his, you know, because here in Slovenia, it's very close to Italy, so we are bordering on Italy. So uh, Venice is really... <laughs> Um, a couple of steps away so um, on one of his many trips to like they do study trips in architecture to Venice um, and they study classical forms and all these do these all kinds of drawings of uh, bridges and canals and uh, palazzos um, he took these photographs that you are now showing um, and I think that um, Maybe you can show or later. It's really um, wonderful um, how you can see the random moment that actually become alive forever. And, and I think that I can still sense in his, in his photos 
I can still sense, um, like I can, I can see what he was seeing. So yeah. it's incredible. That's the, the, the thing that uh, photos provide. Yeah. I love, I love those photos. Can, can you, Anna, just bring them back again? Oh, wow. There's more amazing, like those moments. So Tasia, can you speak to any of these photos? Like, I, I love the, the <laughs> my preferred one is the one with pigeons because they're representative of, uh, of Venice and also because of the interplay of shades on the, on this, um, you know, uh, on this pattern on the ground. It's very beautiful, very simple. Usually the simplest things are the most beautiful and they're, they're engraved in your mind. So I really like, uh, I didn't receive these photos uh, surprisingly until very late, um, maybe a couple, like 10 years ago or so. My uncle gave them to me and I was like, wow, what is that? I never knew about that, you know? And yeah, it's beautiful. I love that. Um, so, so that was, uh, so what is, so the camera, what's the camera story? Camera. Well, uh, he gave me his camera um, when I was very little. And then the camera here, Practica camera, was following me throughout my youth. And um, I was like really attached to this piece of uh, jewelry. <laughs> and I took it everywhere. And then uh, when I went to this high school trip um, in, to Spain, I dropped it on the floor in Marineland because I was already excited about seeing the dolphins and everything. So yeah, and since then I can't use it anymore. I tried to fix it, but it's like the old practica. I really love this memory of his legacy, actually. I love, I love this um, idea because it's unusual to give a child an expensive camera at like four years old or five years old, even six years old, because people th say, oh, the child might drop the camera. We don't need to, but I think your dad probably, do you think that he wanted to see how you see the world? Like just how, what is it, the things that you capture possibly? Just like you saw his photos. That's it. That is definitely an option that yeah. he had in mind because he was very um, sensitive man and very appreciative of the environment. He wanted me to see the world that he saw, I, I imagine. Um, I often speak with my, my uh, uncle's wife and she said that he was a great person to talk to whenever he wanted, uh, they wanted to, to talk about inner, you know, the, the, what's, what's going on inside. He came to her and they spoke for hours and hours. Yeah. I love that. Maybe, yeah, that was maybe. So your your sense of meaning to like you know of space or art is very intense because something you've developed throughout your life you see space mm -hmm. differently, correct? So when you went to Stanford, when we talked about your experience in Stanford, uh, you went there to do social entrepreneurship and you were inspired by a sculpture of Rodin um, and. Um, what was what was inspiring about that sculpture? I, uh, the burgers of Cal Calias. Okay, yeah. yeah. Do you know the story behind it? You know it, right? So uh, to to keep it short, um, there was this English king back in three, 1300s who um, defeated Calais after many many time, uh, many many attempts, and then um, he wanted to kill the entire city, but then he decided to only um, take six of the most important citizens. That's one story, and I prefer this story. <laughs> and then he um, took them out um, outside the city gates, uh, and he took them out in chains, like they had ropes around their necks. And then his wife, the queen, came and she fell to her knees and she asked, she begged that they won't be, like they, they, their, their lives are spared. So. Um, he gave in because she was carrying a baby and she thought that it's a bad omen. So that's one, there are a lot of stories around it, but I, I, I think that this one was the right, the one. Um, what I really like about this Burgess of Calais, I was pretty obsessed 
going there every day, every single morning on my way to school there. And, and it was in the main, main quad. And I really observed these um, expressions on their faces, you know, because they're so illustrative. And they, this um, rope or chain around their neck really symbolizes for me this, um, no, uh, their voice is silent. Um, and actually what this means, this uh, part here actually means uh, the ability to listen. So they, they can't hear, they can't listen, they don't have a voice. So it was really interesting um, to draw parallel to that. And all in all, I love the, the way how human forms or human human condition is displayed in these um, these sculptures, um, and and then of course the aesthetical part, uh, the interplay of shadow and, and light and um, depth and surfacing, and also the inner truth, right? Yeah, it's okay. what is I love I love your observations, Tijo. What is striking about this, as I hear you speak, um, is that you know, we might be surrounded by many people, like how many times we can be surrounded with people um, in our world, but we feel lonely. We feel like we are immersed in our own world. And usually we feel those feelings when we are uh, sad or we are in crisis. And I think um, what you, you know, throughout your career, you've been striving to bring people together to not feel that sense of loneliness and sense of like isolation like you want people to be together and um and probably so do you think that's part of also why uh you like yeah. that sculpture for sure for sure and you reminded my, uh, me of that i didn't even pay attention the other day when we were talking and you know what happened today in on a walk i i went out we have uh, mandatory masks everywhere we go. So I went out for a walk, a very short walk, and I was observing people, uh, everybody's isolating, like moving away from each other. Don't, don't, they're not, like nobody's even looking at you. So I started observing the gaze, you know, it's so important where you put your attention with your eyes and just a tiny gaze into other people's eyes, even with masks on, it changes. Um, your the way you you go through through your day you know and I really appreciate these are the moments that are building our everyday lives yeah. um, to pay attention and to 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 look into one other uh, each other's eyes we need to connect because we don't have to be as miserable as those people in the sculpture yeah. like we yeah. have the opportunity we're not we, we're not imprisoned only in our heads. So we need to connect and reach out to one another. Um, okay. Yeah, I love, I love that thought, uh, Tasia. So now you are in Stanford, you're all excited. And I know how you are. You knock on everyone's professor <laughs> <laughs> door. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so your time in Stanford led you to create your own business, which is uh, City Says. So why you named your company City Says? Actually, uh -huh. actually the, the name came from the street block that I designed in Stirling in Scotland. We, we called it Stirling Says, <laughs> and because the uh, cities speak, right? Uh -huh. um, and um, you know, um, cities are all about communities that define them. And um, yeah, and it, this project was really successful. Um, we were working with Architecture Design Scotland and uh, Stirling City Council and they, they decided that they will prototype this into Stirling Spaces and start another uh, huge uh, deal. Um, it's, it was called Startup Street Stirling and then we were reactivating um, the entire city centre um, with the youth activities in there so it was pretty interesting project so I really wanted to continue in this direction. Yeah, I don't know. I took it from there and um, yeah, that's it. So what is the mission of City Says and uh, is there any connection between the company uh, mission and the name in any way? Yeah, well, um, we explore what social innovation can do in combination with architecture, in combination with design and technology sometimes, not all the time, like technology can be all sorts of things. Um, and we envision 
like real um, community-based solutions together we co-create with communities um, so basically we come up with an interactive neighborhood as we like to call it um, and we enable people to to have these scenarios where they can participate where they can iterate and co-create together um, I, I don't know um, yeah, it surely has uh, to do, as I said uh, before, um, the mission is to build inclusive, resilient um, neighborhoods. And um, I, I think in a way, my gosh, you got me thinking now, um, because I need uh, to give people a voice. So I think it's, uh, it also relates to that, giving people a voice. Because the people are the cities, yeah, people are everywhere. And that's evident because it's kind of, uh, there's tracks in your career that just, you know, all leads to this giving people a voice. And you've done that with the Great Cities Institute um, of mm -hmm. University of Illinois in Chicago, when you went and uh, to help bring um, you know, the people voice, people voice in the most dangerous parts of Chicago. Um, and you chose to go into the field when I think many others chose to stay behind their computer. Why you as an urban planner thought it was so important for you to uh, go into the field and well, do your research there? When you work with communities, you know, Rim, you all already know that really, really well, because you do the same. You need to go out to, to, to people and you need to speak with people. You need to talk with them. And uh, that's the only way you, you're gonna find out uh, what their needs are and expectations, you know? And there are so many misunderstandings in urban development just precisely because they don't uh, allow for this space uh, for people to voice out their needs. And um, I think it's like a, going on, a, I already uh, talked about this in some other calls, but I, I, I think it's about the process of discovery. You never know what you're gonna find with communities that you're gonna work with. And you, you do not define in advance uh, what needs to be done uh, because it needs to be meaningful, valuable for people, right? And so this Chicago attempt was, um, it's actually a really good initiative because there is no political will whatsoever right now to invest in this part of the city um, and they organized themselves the Metropolitan Planning Council released some vision around the rivers of Chicago like so Chicago, Calumet and some other and they wanted to make the rivers more inclusive, more livable, more inviting for people who live there and then um, a lot of these different players from the territory came together like uh, resident community organizations, businesses, and they started creating a document first and then the strategy how to address the, these environmental issues uh, in this part of, the, of Chicago, southeast side. Yeah. So it was a brilliant attempt. And yeah, we needed to go out. It was you, a challenging, you, but yes. Do you have any interesting experience talking to people from that um, area? Well, some people are really reluctant at the beginning to talk. This was a very long process, like it took them eight months to develop some sort of framework to even um, start um, the community dialogue. So I came in um, maybe two months in, in the process and it was still very early. But we, we already had some amazing experiences uh, on the river. And I must say that <laughs> the team that I, I came uh, to this um, mission with, they were there for the first time as me, like me, outside. So um, it was not, uh, I was really surprised because usually you in the US are very action driven, action research type of, you know, is going on. Um, but this time was very like, yeah. but it took them a lot of time, a lot of processing, a lot of uh, discussions to finally um, do this needs assessments and, and analysis of what needs to be done. Yeah, so what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that 
we can't develop anything with any community if we don't have their trust mm -hmm. their yeah. voice and it's really about building relationships and creating this community dialogue mm -hmm. which you mastered later in your career through you know the games um and all this stuff which we're going to talk about but um you also at your core understand that urban planning is peace and everything you do is mm -hmm. peace and so you went and became a Rotary Peace Fellow and studied at the uh, Peace Center in Thailand. Uh, so tell me, like, what was your biggest lesson or favorite lesson about peace that you've learned? Oh, well, I have so many. But first, first takeaway was my family that I got there, uh, this incredible family of Rotary Peace Fellows and friends for life. And... Um, yeah, we had a lot of fun together. Yes, you can see us on graduation day. Um, and um, another thing was that I, I got this incredible opportunity uh, through our field trips, field study trips. Um, uh, I've been welcomed into the lives of communities that stand for their rights. For example, in Chiang Kong, we visited this um, Mekong River School for Local Knowledge. Um, and their partner in Save the Mekong Coalition and so on. They're pretty important players, like community-based organization. And um, they, they work on water rights. And there's 18 million people that depend on water rights. Um, and uh, yeah, and then in connection to that, I, I visited the <laughs> past Rotary International President, Bishai uh, Rataku, this great man will always, um, remember him. Um, he, um, he invited a couple of us fellows to his home residency and um, I still remember him walking me to his garden. Aww. But anyway, yeah. Uh, um, tell, I me, wanted tell, to... me, tell me about this experience. Uh, tell me why wow. that experience touched you so much. So we came there, he showed us his hall of fame and then we discussed a couple of things like uh, about the peace building and uh, he was you know he liked me because i was very provocative <laughs> i like to ask <laughs> these provocative questions and he was like sometimes in, in his past lifetime he was a politician you know a deputy prime minister and so on um, and i was like i think he liked uh, the way that i was addressing so he put me next to him and he started feeding me and I, I am vegetarian. <laughs> I did not eat meat and he started putting this, um, uh, you know, chicken rolls on my plate and nearly forcing me to eat that. I was like, okay. Um, anyway, I ate, I ate chicken uh, there um, and I ate some more um, later on. <laughs> so, but he, I really was interested in what he was doing now. And he mentioned this Lake of Love project that he developed, um, it was a recent project back then. And, um, and then I asked him, please show me your plans and his servants, they have servants in Thailand. Um, uh, his servants came and showed me all these plans and it's a, a really good project. Um, I was deeply moved. Um, he developed it and dedicated it to, to King, His Majesty King Rama the Ninth. Wow. Uh, because uh, Rama the Ninth spent a lot, like most of his life, in rural areas helping poor people and the farmers. So um, this Lake of Love is a, like a symbolic um, homage that will bring, bring lasting improvements in, in, in the lives of farmers and rural people. And because uh, Rama, uh, Ramadanite was uh, so, so very much fond of water, you know, uh, the most significant topic for him was water, um, because he knew so well that if he can provide enough water, um, then he will improve the livelihoods of farmers. So I really like this project. And also I, I noticed that Bishai was very uh, deeply um, touched by this, by developing this. He was a personal friend. He was talking how King Rama uh, came on his, I don't know which birthday celebration and he gave him flowers and so on. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. I, I love it. I love that, uh, you know, as a Rotary past president, 
caring about water is not a coincidence because it's one of air, uh, uh, Rotary's seven areas of focus, water and sanitation. Yeah. Um, so we're happy to know that uh, our presidents and Rotary are pushing this mm -hmm. agenda. So uh, Tasia, I also noticed uh, that we are some of our friends, Terry and Jimena, who you currently work with on, um, and, and yeah, we're kind of the group who are working on Kenya projects with Rotary. Uh, so can you tell us briefly about your Kenya project? So Kenya, uh, I, I joined the group uh, with Jimena. Um, she and her uh, organization, United for Change, is developing a project in collaboration with the community-based organization from Kisumu City Slum um, in Kenya. And it's basically building a sustainable peace uh, in these vulnerable communities that are affected with HIV. And it mostly has to do with women and girls. So uh, we came together. I'm deeply moved because I, I have my one of the very best friends from Rotary uh, Peace Fellowship is Elizabeth Angere. Uh, this is the Peace Fellow that is um, leading this Women Arise for Positive Change. Yay! Yes, Lizzie. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, we want to establish some uh, training centers, entrepreneurial training centers, uh, to empower these women with soft skills and hard, hard skills in entrepreneurship and you know, um, making the locally consumable products as well as social skills and reproduct. Like we want to educate them about reproductive rights and so many other things. But the the main idea is to empower like eight one hundred eighty um, women with their families in the city slums of Kisumu, uh, Nyalenda, and some other. Um, and provide them with some sort of um, skills that they will be able to implement to, uh, to sustain their families and improve their lives. Yeah. I love that. And so um, it is an ongoing project that you uh, actually hope to have Rotarians help you with. And it's yeah. part of the Rotarian uh, project, uh, Incubator Project uh, in Geneva. Um, yes. Yeah. I'm so, inviting everyone to join us on the uh, Geneva Peace Week on the 1st of November, where we're going to be presenting Reem and Jimena and Tara and me are going to be each presenting our own projects uh, within this. <laughs> Good announcement, Tisha. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> November 1st. And, uh, <laughs> and we will, um, uh, the, the, the time is not yet decided, but you should look at the website for the Geneva Incubator, Projects Incubator, um, and we will be there. So back to your uh, career and, um, you know, the project in Kenya is just one of endless many. I can't even ask you about everything you've done and doing, yes. but um, I want to ask you about this concept, uh, gamesipation. It's game and participation. You kind of combine them in one word and it's games to patient. So yeah. what is this concept of urban planning? And um, tell us a little bit more about it. So it's about participation made better through play and games. Now, recently I started liking play better than games because games already have this um, um, pre-context from video games. And I don't like this. Uh, because it's not at all about this um, video game scenarios where, where you get um, so much so immersed that you cannot get out um, and video games are most of the times are very violent so I don't like this <laughs> representation anymore but yes urban games maybe I should call it urban play um, they are kind of providing supportive environment um, so that community action can happen there and uh, it's basically co-creating in safer spaces. Um, and I'm bringing together, in urban games, I'm bringing together uh, lots of playful, different playful approaches in urban design and then we incorporate storytelling and other like tech innovations sometimes, uh, like AR or VR, not all the time. Um, uh, it depends on the, you know, if you're in Morocco, you don't, you don't expect you don't even think about um, going in this kind of direction because people there hardly know um, how to communicate on on the platforms like on 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 Wix based platforms, uh, let alone um, know what what this AR innovation is all about. 
So, um, and then we hold space for people basically to join in and so they can begin to start feeling comfortable and motivated uh, so that they start sharing their experiences. It's kind of like uh, the, the work we were doing in Chicago. We were doing community visioning sessions to um, enable people to, to get used to this, uh, to trust, to start trusting among each other and to trust us. And so we can start co-creating together. And it's all about uh, improving human connection and because uh, people need to be more present together, right? Yeah. So they can start co-creating the environment. Yeah. So recently... But, a of, but there's a lot of examples also in the Nordic countries. They are very much advanced in this. Uh, for example, in Helsinki, they are building public buildings based on the principles of safer space together with communities all the time. They're shifting these principles. Yeah, because people are uh, changing and so the buildings should also be shifting their, um, you know. Which, which reminds us um, of COVID time and like how games could actually bring people together. So um, you actually decided that during lockdown, it's time to play a game in the city. <laughs> and so what is, um, can you tell us a little bit about this project? I think it's called, it's a, you, it's a Romania uh, botanical yeah. garden. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's called the uh, Open Access Project. I'm part of this Open Access for a year and a half now. It's uh, where we uh, experiment with transmedia and also performance arts, which is very new to me. And it's completely different code of uh, like line of thinking and acting, which I really like the theatrical, you know, um, the theatrical representations. Uh, so I am doing the project now uh, for three showcases in different festivals. One was just last, last weekend and we caught the last train because now the theaters are and all the venues are closed and the botanical garden there uh, that was uh, set as my venue for my game, it's part of the university so it would also close. And I was very happy to have the game there. And yes, we've got, uh, it was called the Sprites of Meadowlands. I was um, um, exploring hidden elements in the botanical garden and um, people were starting with a walk and then all the details of the garden unravel slowly. Uh, and all these synchronicities happen, you know, where people don't expect like that they, they all visit this place because only the residents of Cluj were able to enter in these times. And they all know this place so much, but now it's gotten them a totally different experience of the garden. Um, and I was playing a lot about what is hidden, what is shown, and questioning the perception of reality, how people respond to different uh, urban fabric, you know, the different places in the city, and also the practices. So um, now I'm intending to make this project uh, larger. Uh, with a social impact focus. So on the step two, there will be, um, the players will be invited to envision the world as a spirit because it's a game about spirits. Um, elemental powers are very much a part of it. So air, water, uh, fire, stone and electricity. So now they will put themselves in the shoes of this spirit that they became during the game and they will envision a new world. But I, I, I really want to tell a story um, very shortly about the elder couple that came, that came to, to this game. They didn't come for the game uh, intentionally. They just wanted to spend some quality time together. And then they fin finished all the prompts and all the, <laughs> all the exercises. It was a fantastic experience for them. And they connected in a much... Uh, more meaningful way and and this game uh, turned out to be a big hit because everything was booked and people started negotiating among each other uh, to have shorter slots are you gonna play only for 20 minutes please so that i can pop in so it became really uh, evident that it's necessary to have these kind of spaces to interact you know and people, it was meant to be a solo individual experience because only one person was allowed at the one time, but then people rearranged the rules. So up to seven people played on one tablet and stuff. So it was really, really cool um, how the dynamics can shift and also go around all these things. Of course, everybody was 
um, um, make, wearing masks and taking precautions and stuff like that. But yeah, um, there is this kind of dynamics that I'm interested in. I, I love this notion that the city or the botanical garden or any space could be yeah. a playground yeah, uh, and that we can experience it in a different way like yeah like walking through the botanical garden is a beautiful experience but playing with others you know you you're kind of isolated but like when you play with others there's a community you're enjoying the space differently you mm -hmm. think about the different things in the garden differently yeah. uh, we need more games we need more spaces to that bring people together in a game and and then you collect data also tj so it's not just to no end it's actually tells you it's a way of helping the community participate yes. uh, right so you know uh, at the end of this um, showcase i had the feedback session and this was the most valuable uh, experience for us all you know because people came who played the game to also connect to each other. Oh, what did you find interesting? Oh, my, my spirit was stone spirit. I found this game, it was an old Bhutanese game with the stones and pebbles, the most amazing thing ever. You know, everybody was throwing pebbles in the, in the air and then trying to catch them. And then if they didn't catch them, they needed to find balance and to, um, pick the ones that were, that they dropped from the floor while having the, the ones that they caught uh, still on. So it was so much fun. You know, we are all children. We need to be children more and we need to play. We need to turn the parking lots into playgrounds. I think so. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna start for that. So uh, so you actually through Gamesipation or through the games, you've done actually another similar thing in Athens in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods there and you came across uh, gang members uh so i think in a normal setting gang members would not participate when uh, like with the urban planners so tell us the story about how they got engaged and yeah so yeah um athens has a lot of uh, challenging neighborhoods as you may know and we we collaborated in a festival called uh Patision. we insist this is one of the main roads there and it was a grassroots festival and we connected with one um, like local organization so we collaborated in this uh, place called victoria square project and it's a project set up by by american social sculptor rick Lowe. and it's about um, the project was about we had a workshop and then created a game about um, tackling and activating the deprived neighborhoods and um, one of them it was this Victoria Square, where um, it was a meeting place for all the refugees. And now still, uh, there are a lot of um, refugees uh, running, like laying around, um, young men only, um, everywhere around the Victoria Square. Um, and then we went to, to America Square, which was part of actually the first urban neighborhood in. Uh, in Athens, Kipseli, which is very interesting um, area. You know, you have a, a lot of these um, historical uh, moments there that you can experience as an urban planner. But the, now the place is run by drug cartel, and and then also there's prostitution, and um, but there are at the same time residents who live there for over 60 years now, and you can imagine how furious they are because uh, what is happening uh, with their neighborhood. So yeah, we positioned our stance on, the, on this America Square in the middle. And then uh, there were a bunch of these young kids um, that um, looked very dangerous, <laughs> you know, but I'm used to, uh, to this. It's not at all like that, you know, it's just a perception from outside. They just came and they just asked us, what are we doing here? Don't we know that this is their territory and we cannot do anything here without their approval and everything. And we said like, we are just playing a game. Come join us. And, and they said, no, what? Okay, maybe later. So you, when you present this um, game or play approach to people, they, they, they turn into like, 
kids <laughs> and they were all the time like for a couple of hours they were monitoring us what we are doing and constantly uh, being on 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 guard you know but then uh, slowly they came and people started coming in residents and all these furious people they were arguing on the stands you know because we were discussing with them and we wanted to take them for a walk uh, following this game that we created and then uh, slowly some some of these young fellows they came and they started playing with the residents it was something incredible we don't usually take photos of these kind of events because we are working in challenging neighborhoods and we want to give people space but it was a site i will not forget anyway like it was incredible wow. so, so to create this moment so in a way the game um gaming and urban planning coming together allows you to be more inclusive actually it offers an opportunity to include uh, unlikely uh, participants of the community to be engaged you know because i think they wouldn't engage otherwise and they didn't engage easily but eventually they engaged because every one of us has a child within and you tapped into that, you know, tapping into that is really interesting through that form format. Yeah. And who knows what would happen if we would be there two hours later when nobody would be there, you know? It's yeah. just a perfect timing that we, <laughs> we chose. There's other interesting phenomena in urban planning like that is related to women um, than from your experience. So can you tell us about the story of this town uh, that was a former iron iron town in oh, okay. yeah the so i i started working at the slovene union of university women like 10 years or something and i i volunteered in a project that i really uh was attracted to so it was designed by a group called olup it's a slovenian designers group and it was a project called reveal tent um basically um they worked with a group of immigrant women from ex-Yugoslavian countries. They came to Slovenia due to various stories uh, in their life, like also to because of the situation that was happening in their own countries. So um, all these immigrant women uh, wanted to basically connect with each other um, outside of their families, right? And this Jesenice is a very, very great city. It's a former mining and iron making um, city. So a lot of um, only the immigrants mostly live there. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, they were, you know, the, as you may probably know, Bosnians, they're very good um, in manual work. You know, they're making all these rocks and wonderful, colorful palette of, of handicraft products. So these women were united through this textile, uh, love for textile uh, handicraft. And then um, we wanted to create this intercultural connections uh, through this manual work. And, and actually it became a therapeutic practice and they started recovering their uh, like uh, trauma, uh, from trauma um, through this um, socializing with other, with other um, women. And I also learned today on some tapping call that um, it's very good to, to work with hands and with fingers in these times of stress to to get the sanity out uh, out again in your mind you know to forget about the fear and to bring the common sense into into your mind again so um i suppose it worked um, um a similar way as a trauma recovery tool and then they connected more um they connected to icelandic women at a later stage when i already um didn't didn't participate um I know that they had the idea for um, connecting with Icelandic slipper makers. You know, the, they are very proficient makers of slippers. So uh, they connected these different cultures and yeah, it was a very interesting project. I, I love this project because <clears throat> it creates a space for women to come together when it's a city that is um, iron city. Iron is more of an industry for men. So men has a community already, but the women didn't. And then when you bring a textile, they connect and there's a community. Uh, so they're not isolated anymore. Sometimes uh, creating a space is not only 
physical space, it's also sometimes a metaphorical space or like an industry or an activity that brings people together. So I really love this um, intentional focus on women, especially uh, the immigrants from ex from Yugoslavia. Um, yeah. And you know, this kind of work always includes a lot of mindfulness and tolerance practices and a lot of patience because you're all, after all, you're working with vulnerable groups yeah. and then you empower them. Yeah. And yeah. they empower each other. You don't do anything. They empower each other. That's what I want. Exactly. One of the interesting projects that you've worked on is uh, related to this interesting um relationship between religion and urban planning in Vienna for example there are sacred places that are hidden like uh, so can you share an example of a sacred place um, that is hidden and why it was hidden what is this okay. sacred places that are hidden in, in Vienna for example there are a lot of different places like that like uh, one example is the mosques uh, there are like around 285 mosques that were hidden um, um, behind the wall, the facades of normal buildings, there were churches like this, you know, mosques and, and other. Uh, one example that I wanted to uh, bring out here is a synagogue, it's a Turner temple. It's a, one of the most prominent uh, Viennese synagogues. And it was wiped out overnight during this night of the, how is it called? Kristallnacht, night of the broken glass, right? The pogrom, uh, November pogrom in 1938. Uh, the November, yes, 1938, uh, by the Nazis, and um, um, because they raised all of the synagogues in Vienna except for one, um, and that meant that the total, the entire Jewish community disappeared from that district, right? And uh, then they built some gas station and something like garage or something on the on the place, and then. In the 70s, uh, 70s, they they built a council flats around it, so this place remained empty. And in the at the end of 80s or 90s, yeah, um, they put a commemorative plaque uh, on the corner, very corner, where nobody could see uh, anything. And it was fenced, you know, it was uh, empty, but uh, the fence was put around it. So in 2010, they uh, opened the call. Um, to design an open space, a meeting space, and so on, and a memorial that would act like, a, that would try to uh, to bring uh, some vitality to this part of the city. So these kind of examples are really, like there are so many in Vienna. Yeah. Yeah. And it became so, kind of metaphorical space, yeah? Like you were, yeah. So what is the intervention that you've done to, um, hmm bring these uh, spaces into our attention and what is it that that you're trying to accomplish with that urban intervention so with a bunch uh, with uh, five uh, women from vienna some of them were muslim um, we created a project called unseen sacred spaces uh, uh, because uh, we wanted to uh, point out to this invisibility of uh, sacred buildings like i said the mosques hidden and because it says a lot about uh, social integration and in our society and how people are welcomed or not welcomed mm -hmm. and um, either they're hidden because of their history like in this uh, example of the synagogue or uh, because they would um, foster all these political and social discussions like the mosques um, or maybe um, they are um, re reframed, for example, repurposed. Um, like in, in an example that we also took one Coptic church was then given to other Christian group because they needed space, they grew, grew bigger communities and they needed new spaces. So um, we, we created this platform and a game again um, because we wanted to tell the stories that were not told and um, we wanted to give people the opportunity to reflect and to sharpen their view on, on this social injustice that's been done. Yeah. And then um, also um, people started reflecting now, I hope we are gonna expand this project. It was just now made in, in June and July, but uh, we're gonna expand to other types of sacred and non-sacred spaces. But we are um, addressing basically what community 
what this does to community, what kind of emotions that it brings in, it brings out, and what kind of images are created around it. Yeah. This is very important uh, point uh, and project, uh, Tasia, because um, it highlights that urban planning can be used as a tool of oppression, as a tool of marginalization, as a tool of not paying, not uh, including people. And it can also play a role in including people and elevating their voices and bring them together. So um, who is designing things, who is making the decisions on the buildings and where they are? Uh, we need this intentional focus on peace. Um, and, and I think that project highlights that in tremendous ways. Um, another thing you've done before we move to Q&A, uh, we have one question. Uh, so feel free to ask Tasia any questions, but uh, since we have one question, I can talk to you a little bit more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, you've um, done a project in Morocco uh, so this project that you're leading in Morocco is part of kind of a collaboration between various stakeholders from Slovenia, Turkey, France, Portugal, and collaboration with Morocco itself to reserve local knowledge of indigenous people and the Quarza, I don't know this word. Quarza, you should go because a lot of Hollywood production is shot there. <laughs> I don't know, now it's not uh, going on, but uh, yeah, all the major movies were done there. And so I can, I can meet celebrities there, maybe yes, bring yes, one or yes. two. Everybody, <laughs> Brad Pitt even. <laughs> no, seriously, Babylon was uh, shot there and, and wow. all the Cleopatras and I don't know. So this region in Morocco, you're doing a project there where all the movie stars are in the... So what are the major issues that you're trying to solve if they have all these great movies? Like, what okay. are the issues? Yeah. We were invited, uh, like, a bunch of uh, architects from all over the world and uh, geographers and urban planners. We were invited by French Development Agency, and this was a collaboration with this um, um, governor and the municipalities around that in Warzazat in Tarmik. Um, because we, we needed to come uh, up with a strategy for Oasis City, uh, because this is Oasis and we need to build a 21st century Oasis City. Basically, they wanted us to, to confirm their ideas, what they want to do with the region, and they wanted to turn Arzazat to another touristical Marrakesh destination. And we didn't want that. And um, we saw all these potentials, you know, it has a large historical heritage um, in this place. It's full of Kasbahs and Xars, even some world, uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites um, are there. And um, there are a lot of, as I said, Hollywood movie production is there at home. And then they have some good examples of, of um, sustainable practices uh, of living, like um, they have this amazing, incredible solar energy complex, NOR, and they're collaborating with the Japanese scientists on the latest technologies in double photovoltaic, I don't know what. Uh, it's like incredible uh, place. And then they have agriculture, they have also knowledge of building from, from these local ecological materials. But there is uh, an enormous challenge. There are a lot of challenges, but uh, two of the most prominent ones are um, loss, like there is loss of local know-how in transferring these practices like um, building from local materials, it's not happening anymore. Only for the main, you know, kasbahs and, and the main like vernacular home domestic architecture, that's still going on because they need to renew every couple of, of years. Yeah. Um, and the second one was complete lack of holistic vision for the territory. And that's why we, we set out on an expedition there. <laughs> <laughs> So you want to restore kind of the indigenous people like heritage and also to give them this holistic, sustainable vision for their future. So it's not just bits and pieces of like um, activity, but it's holistic system. So one of the things that um, it is famous there is what's called rammed earth uh, building technique. Can you tell us what's this ancient tradition? Well, this is a type of construction from earth. Um, it's very simple, uh, but it's um, com basically compre uh, compressing a sandy uh, mixture into a hard uh, sandstone 
like you have uh, gravel and sand and you add some clay and um, and then you have this uh, what is called formwork like i think it's like panels maybe it calls yeah some flat flat panels that you put this uh, substance in in and then um, this mixture um, compacts into form and then uh, the forms are then taken off and there is this solid earth wall that remains wow. so um uh, we created with my my friend from there paulo the architect from uh, um, lisbon uh, we created because he's an expert in this sustainable architecture vernacular architecture uh, we created this kind of exhibition listening to the earth sound and vision of a easy city because we wanted to portray how this um, vernacular buildings that means domestic and functional buildings are made with this um, uh, rammed earth method um, and it's also a very low carbon uh, footprint uh, tech technology and it has a lot of connection with the history of the place with social like and cultural traditions so it goes way back into the history and people used to morocco's number one um, producer of this kind of um, construction um, but now all they do is this um, renovation.